You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by Yahweh. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to Yahweh from my hand for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me. And be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver, a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that Yahweh will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtel, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of Yahweh. Then the five men departed and came to Laish, and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security, after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians, and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtel, the brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into our hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. 
So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Ashtel, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim, and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there, and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah, and asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with these six hundred men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was very far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. And they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 712 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, September 13th, 2023. And that was a whole lot of nonsense. That was just a lot of what in the world, what is this, a Monty Python sketch about how the people of Israel came into the promised land? It's a parody. And it's a parody all the way down. What's gross is that you have people doing what is right in their own eyes and deciding that they're just going to change up. 
They're just going to go ahead and mix in whatever, right? It's going to be an eclectic thing. Oh, worship of Yahweh? Check. Saying a little prayer, honoring Yahweh with our lips? Check. Having a Levite in the mix? Yeah, check. Also, having an ephod? Yep, well, I think that's part of uh, how it's supposed to go, right? I think that's biblical. Having an ephod? We've got an ephod. Let's make an ephod. And also, let's make a carved image and a metal image, even though God expressly said, do not, do not do that. Let's go ahead and make some idols and let's have a Levite priest, our own Levite priest, be first for some guy, right? Some guy has his own priest and he says, oh yeah, now I know it's going to go well. Now I know Yahweh will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Wait a second, you idiot. (laughs) You can't be serious. You can't think that having your own priest is all there is to it. You'll find out in due time, my friends, my listeners, you'll find out that Israel has Levite priests for a long, long time. It doesn't keep them from trouble. The trouble is they have the Levite priests. Okay, check. Yep, you check that box. Great. And you mix in the worship of other gods and you worship those other gods right alongside Yahweh, which he told you has the very first command in the Ten Commandments. You know, the ones that God wrote with his own finger on tablets of stone and gave to Moses, and then Moses came down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, to find that the people were frolicking, having probably something like Burning Man, quite honestly, around a golden calf and playing, which is a euphemism, I just about guarantee you, for orgies, orgiastic worship of a false god right As Moses is coming down with the tablets of stone, the law, the Ten Commandments, to give to the people, yeah, you remember that? That's pretty much what Israel does, and it's not sanctified just because they have a Levite. This guy's household is not sanctified because he has a Levite as a priest. His own personal, oh man, I've got my own personal priest. I have my own Levite. I am going to do just fine. I'm going to do great. It doesn't work at scale for the people of Israel when they make the golden calf, after telling Aaron, and there was a very similar mindset when they told Aaron this, up, make us a golden image. It didn't go well for the people of Israel just because they had Aaron, the proto-Levite priest, make the golden calf for them. And it doesn't go well for this guy named Micah in the hill country of Ephraim. In fact, The tribe of Dan blows through on their way to go and murder a whole bunch of innocent people. It seems like they didn't do anything. They were just minding their own business. Their greatest crime was that they were vulnerable and weak and naive, and they didn't see what was coming. They got got decimated. They got destroyed. Dan just decides, okay, we're going to move into this place. This land seems good to us. And it's like they're trying to imitate some of the form, but they don't have the attitude of what God brought Israel into the promised land in the first place to have. They're going to do a very similar sort of a thing, kind of sort of, but it's a parody. It's a caricature of what God had told Israel to do. And so what, right? What do they expect? They blow through and they find this guy, Micah, who's got his own household gods, his own shrine, his own priest. They've got an ephod. They've got a carved image. They've got a metal image. They've got all the things, right? They decide, you know what? You work for us now. The question from the Levite is, what are you guys doing? And they say, you know what? How about you just shush? 
How about you just cover your mouth? Okay, we'll ask nicely for you to shut up and just do what you're told because right now, might's going to make right. You are going to let us take you and all this stuff, all of the trappings of religion, and now you're going to be our priest. Wouldn't that be better? And it says the Levite priest was glad. He went from, what are you doing? And this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't make any sense to being glad. Why? Because it appealed to his vanity. It was selfish ambition and vain conceit and reverence for Yahweh did not enter into it. It was a non-factor. That's the other side of the coin or that's what precedes doing what is right in their own eyes and having a whole lot of tomfoolery be the result. Dan says, we're going to take this Levite. We're going to take these religious trappings and we'll be on our way and we will go get our own inheritance. We will dispossess this people that lives in peace in this place. We'll kill them and take their land because that's kind of what God said to do, right? I mean, it's close. There was, there was some stuff in there in the law of Moses about all this and we'll just remix it and uh, it'll be great. And then the, the guy Micah, right? The guy Micah, who is from this hill country of Ephraim, he follows after them. And they're like, what are you doing? Why are you following us? He's like, uh, you took my stuff. You took my priest. What do you mean? Why am I following you? And they're like, you know, we don't really want to hear why you're following us anymore. You should probably just go home. Lest something bad happen to you. Lest some of our number get angry. And then he's like, okay, well, I guess I'll just go home then because you have a good point. You make a good point that I could lose my life and my whole household be murdered by y'all. You make a good point. On second thought, I think I will just go home. It's fine. This is not honorable. This is not good and godly. This is chaos and bedlam. And in case you needed the reminder There's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and it's not right. Right in their own eyes is not right. What they should be doing is what's right in God's eyes. But that's the thing they don't want to do, and they've completely forgotten God. They want the trappings of religion, and they have no reverence for God, no fear of God. They do what is right in their own eyes as a result of forgetting God entirely. They don't take God seriously. They don't take his law seriously. They don't meditate on it day and night. Why? Because it would get in the way of what they find to be pragmatic. And here's what's so dangerous about so much of what passes for wisdom in the mainstream evangelical scene in America. It occupies itself with what is right in our eyes. If we have the numbers, if we have the tithes and the offerings, if we have the big, beautiful building, if we have people showing up, people are excited and happy and enthusiastic We don't have to actually see spiritual growth and obedience now. We don't have to see repentance now. We can just tell ourselves that if they keep coming, if we keep doing this, at a certain point, it'll go well with us. At a certain point, God will do the business of correcting and convicting and confronting, and then these people will repent of their sins, and they'll turn away from their false gods, and they will obey God. They will confess their sins, that is to say, agree with God that they have sinned, and they will pursue righteousness at some point. But God will have to do that part. We're just going to get people to show up. If we get people to show up, then we'll count it a success. But again, it's selfish ambition and vain conceit. It's like this man Micah's own personal Levite being glad all of a sudden. 
when it's put to him like this. What would be better for you to be the Levite dedicated to one household or for you to be the Levite dedicated to a whole tribe, the tribe of Dan? It happens just like that. It's folly. It's extraordinarily stupid. It's stupid and (laughs) it's not going to end well. It didn't end well for these guys. It won't end well for us. But will we learn? Probably not. By all the same factors which lead me to say that this is stupid, we also, most of us, are not going to change our minds. We're going to be stiff-necked, bullheaded, stubborn, and we're going to keep on doing it. And when confronted, when challenged, we'll be told the same kinds of things. Those of us who might be like, hey, what are we doing? What what is going on? This is not okay. This is going to go to a bad end. We'll get the same kind of response from certain wicked men who like the trappings of religion, but they say, you know what? You should probably pipe down less. Someone, they don't even take ownership of the threat being from them. Someone might get angry and do you harm. You might lose your life. Yeah. Is that someone you? How about you just come right out and say what you're going to say? Because what you could say is you'll stand by my side and you will speak up on my behalf if what I'm saying is right and true. You could say that if you were an honorable man, but you're not. You're not an honorable man, so you make veiled threats because you got a lot of people behind you. You make veiled threats to deprive me of life and liberty. Whatever will do the trick, but you hope it doesn't come to that because that would really interrupt your plans for today. It wouldn't exactly be restful for you to either kill me or to stand by and watch and listen. I mean, it's just such a mess. There's such a such a mess when we have to kill somebody for upsetting what we wanted to do because that's all we really care about. And when that's all we really care about, what we might do, unfortunately, is get people doing something, right? We say, oh, there's a lot going on. That's a mess. Let's do something. We'll do something. And then we do something and As long as we did something, who cares whether it was right in our eyes or whether this is what God ordained, this is what God commanded, who cares? As long as we're doing something, we can feel good about ourselves. And that is not correct. That is foolish. That is being wise in our own eyes. You might as well just paraphrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes as everyone was wise in his own eyes. This is where humility before God brings a blessing because humility before God means that you recognize what's right in your own eyes is very often not right. There's a way that seems right to a man. In the end, it leads to death. That's what the humble man, the truly humble man knows. And that's why the truly humble man is wise, not just wise in his own eyes. And so some will say, oh, but Garrett, I think you're being a little harsh. And I say, No, no, I'm not. The rest of y'all are being too lenient and you don't take this seriously enough and you don't realize that the simple-mindedness, thinking that you'll be protected by strength in numbers, that simple-mindedness is not original. It's not new. There is no new thing under the sun. Your attitude has been tried and it always leads to disaster. And just because you don't see a demagogue leading you to disaster or you see somebody you think is a demagogue and he's on the other side, that doesn't mean you can't have as bad and worse outcomes when no particular leader is named. And this just seems to be the collective will. The collective will needs to be called to repent. 
when the collective will is everyone does what is right in his own eyes and there is no fear of God before our eyes. And here's the little secret about God and the character of God in the Old Testament and forever, for all time. God will let you do it. (laughs) You prayed, you honored God with your lips and you prayed and you asked for wisdom, but you didn't believe you would actually get wisdom. And so James would say in the New Testament, you shouldn't expect to receive anything. You're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. And if you had really meant it, if you had really meant it, you wouldn't be citing how it's fine. It's been working out just fine the way we've been doing it. You wouldn't be tiptoeing through the tulips and you wouldn't be beating around the bush if you really had asked God for wisdom and you believed that you had gotten it, you would be boldly saying, stop, 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 repent, agree with God. That's what confession is, by the way. Confession is agreeing with God in a single-minded way. I want to have one mind as opposed to having two minds because the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And this is also, ironically, what is being gotten at, what is being alluded to when Jesus says, I would that you were hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth, which is a word picture to describe vomit or spitting. Just when somebody spits out their drink because they're really surprised by something said, or it's really an especially nasty thing. That's what Jesus does to the lukewarm. And what is the lukewarmness? It's being double-minded. It would actually arguably be better. And I think this is also why God hardens the heart of Pharaoh because Pharaoh hardens his own heart and God is just going to habituate Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart by pressing the point, pressing the decision. No, 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 you're being too ambiguous. I want you to just come right out and say and make it very clear so that the people in the back can hear you are opposing God. God says, let his people go. And you say, no, I won't. Or you say, well, maybe I will. Will you? No. Actually, on second thought, no. Did everybody hear that? He said, no. Okay. All right. That's all we needed. You'll see. And God will make an example of you. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just give it time. Give it time and God himself will rebuke you. But I tried, right? I tried to warn you and you wouldn't listen. My work here is done. I am innocent of this matter. My hands are clean. I tried to warn you and you wanted to be stiff-necked and stubborn and grumble. And boy, howdy, is that ever a recipe for judgment? Grumbling plus disobedience plus stubbornness. Get ready for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. If that's How you are? All right, God says, consistently, again and again, because his character doesn't change. He says, okay, you want to be that way? Now comes the judgment. Man reaps what he sows. You want to be stubborn and double-minded, unstable in all your ways? Get ready for everything to fall apart and come crashing down because that's what you get. That's what it is. And if you loved wisdom, instead of loving so much being thought-wise, If you loved wisdom instead of just being wise in your own eyes, you would have thanked the one who corrected you instead of hating them for it, instead of looking for ways to get back at them. If you were really wise, you would listen to a corrective and you would be reasonable, but you are wise in your own eyes. This business in Judges chapter 17 and 18, whatever you feel about Samson, however much attention Samson gets because toxic masculinity or some dumb thing, 
is all we can see in the story. We don't talk nearly enough about what kind of a woman Delilah is. Watch out for a woman like Delilah, man alive. Watch out for a woman like the unnamed Philistine woman who was his first wife. No, no, that's not the lesson we take away. Let's pile on Samson, even though Samson is God's choice for the judge to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Whatever you feel about Samson's imperfections, what we read in Judges 17 and 18, right after the death of Samson is told about, is far, far worse. All the more rather than less because it doesn't even have the courage to just come right out and say, this is wrong and this is a bad choice. These guys who are doing these things, they do whatever is right in their own eyes, but except for this guy Micah, they're all nameless. They're all anonymous. You get a tribe, and so you get collective guilt, collective responsibility, but no one individual has to own that this is the wicked thing that they're going to do. Where do you even start in addressing the folly? When you have people who will say, you should probably keep quiet lest someone become upset and angry and take your life and fall on you and take your life. Yeah, who? You're the one who speaks for the group, apparently. Is it you? Are you the one who's going to fall on me? Hmm? Is it you? Some people might get offended. You will hear when you try to correct certain things or advise a wiser way, a more faithful, obedient, godly way, you will hear very often somebody might get offended. Yeah. Is the somebody you? Thank you for the reminder. Thank you for telling me somebody might get offended if we changed the way we're doing it because God said so. I think the somebody is you. You would be offended. You would be uncomfortable with that because you are double-minded. You haven't fully made up your mind in favor of doing the right thing, doing the obedient thing, doing the faithful thing, believing God. And okay, that is what it is. Carry on. Don't say I didn't warn you. And yet there's nobody warning the characters involved in Judges chapter 17 and 18. Things just proceed uninterrupted. And part of the reason is because the warning was already delivered. The warning was delivered by Moses and by Joshua. The warnings are already contained in the laws of Moses that were not Moses' laws. They were laws from God given to Moses to give to the people of Israel. The warnings were already given. And so now you do what you do and you'll suffer the consequences. And if you say, well, nobody told us. Yes, as a matter of fact, Moses did, Joshua did, and you wouldn't listen. You forgot, your fathers forgot, your grandfathers forgot on purpose, deliberately, intentionally. But boy, howdy, they didn't forget to keep the trappings of religion. They have attended to that. They have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And then they're confused and they're, oh, I don't know. Why, why are we being oppressed by fill in the blank? Whoever's next. Everybody gets a turn oppressing us. Gee, hmm, just one of life's mysteries, I suppose. No, no, if you would read, if you would read what was told you by God, what was promised by God about blessings and cursings, blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience, if you would have read it, you would know this is exactly what God told you was going to happen. And as a matter of fact, you're doing exactly what Moses predicted you were going to do because you are a stiff-necked people. You are a stubborn people. You are a Wise in your own eyes, stiff-necked, stubborn, disobedient people, unrepentant people. And when that is the case, you are without excuse. You suppress the truth 
because your deeds were dark, because of your own unrighteousness. I understand you want to make a difference. Well, you can start by sticking to your own business. You don't even know what your business is because you've been so hands-off, so self-indulgent, so comfortable, so vain and ambitious for so long. You don't even know what your business is. And so you leave it to others. And if those others happen to be unscrupulous men, dishonest men, cheats, scoundrels, murderers, liars, frauds, and they take everything you've got and then they tell you, you might want to just pipe down. Why don't you just go home? Lest somebody fall on you and you lose your life. What do you do? You do that. You go back home. You leave it well enough alone. You say, okay, well, it's apparently not any of my business, except they just ran off with all your stuff. They just took all your stuff and left you there. If that wasn't your business that just went over the horizon with those guys, well, then I guess you don't have any business. And I guess this is it for you. Maybe try again. Start from scratch. That's the best I can tell you now. But when you start from scratch again, mark my words, when you start from scratch again, rethink why you do what you do. It's not enough to do something. Do what you do because God said so. In yesterday's episode, we talked about Aaron Wren's article, essay, what have you, over at AaronWren.com, talking about building counter-institutions, the need to build counter-institutions. He was quoting Sheffield and Levin and explaining that the moderating, mediating institutions have all broken down. Why have they broken down? Because they decided to tickle ears and to tell men and women, in particular, actually, especially women, what they wanted to hear, to flatter. Don't think they can't be bought. They can absolutely be bought and have been. And so they're captive institutions. And if you try to come up with a counter-institution, like Aaron Wren was saying, we need to, Be prepared for the captive institutions to pull out the knives and breathe veiled threats to you one after another about how, you know, somebody might get offended. There was a reason we were doing it the way we were doing it. Oh, I see. Not because you feared God, apparently, but because you feared the mob. You feared the people who would withdraw their attention and their time and their membership and their money. I see. You didn't fear God that he would withdraw his blessing. And that's how we got to now. Switching gears, though, let's talk about a story I stumbled across yesterday from Not to Be, Daniel Plainview, not his real name, because Daniel Plainview is the character played by Daniel Day Lewis in There Will Be Blood, a movie about the early days of the oil and gas industry here in the U.S., down in Texas specifically. Daniel Plainview, his pseudonym, I'm sure, posted this September 12th, that is yesterday, scientists uncover largest potential lithium deposit in the world, larger than all reserves of current mines multiple times over in supervolcano Caldera on Oregon, Nevada border. As Daniel Plainview reminds us, July 22nd, not to be posted about a tiny Arkansas town that could become the epicenter of a U.S. lithium boom. They have apparently a supply of lithium there, which is sizable. This find being reported in the Pacific Northwest is, they say, estimated to be 20 to 40 million tons of lithium. That is, if you didn't know, 700% of all the lithium in all the current mines around the entire world, 
combined. That's a lot of lithium. Now, if you'll remember, lithium ion batteries are what power most electric vehicles. That's what you're charging. You're charging a lithium ion battery. And also a lot of other rechargeable batteries are lithium ion batteries. Now, on the flip side, lithium ion batteries can be expensive, but a lot of the reason they can be expensive is because you're transporting the raw materials across oceans, across borders. If they're being mined, these lithium deposits across the globe, and then they're being refined and turned into batteries across the globe, and then they're being shipped here as finished goods, there are so many costs associated with transportation and everybody getting their cut, which are tacked on before you can pull this thing off the shelf or you can buy the thing that is made possible with the lithium-ion batteries. If we have all the lithium several times over, seven times over, of the rest of the world combined right here, well, then we don't need to buy it from somebody else. We don't need to depend on friendly relations with perhaps hostile regimes, maybe communistic regimes like China. We don't have to rely on tin pot dictators, banana republic dictators. Now, never mind that we're turning into a banana republic ourselves. But part of the reason why it gets easy to turn into a banana republic here is because we normalize and we rationalize we justify and downplay how bad banana republics are in other places. That's part of how it happens that our own morality, our own decency, our own sense of justice and righteousness is eroded, that we see other countries that we need to maintain good relations with, and we start downplaying how bad it is that they abuse their people or they destroy political rivals, they destroy those who would hold them accountable in media, journalists, for instance, common citizens, for instance, who would criticize their government, criticize them. We justify it. We downplay it so that we can maintain trade relations or some strategic partnership. And the next thing you know, we're doing it. We're doing the same things here that they were doing over there because after all, it's no big deal when they do it. So it's no big deal when we do it. If we have a huge supply of lithium in our own country. Here's what may happen. It may be that the tune of the environmentalists changes dramatically. And not for the reason you would think. You might think, oh, wow, they're going to suddenly be a lot more optimistic. They're going to be much more cheerful. They're going to say, absolutely, let's you know, mine all the lithium, refine it, turn it into batteries, and we can save the planet. All right, our job is done. No, that's not what's going to happen because this is all a wedge, which is trying to drive capitalism, free market capitalism, and conservative Christianity from the public square, that they would try and replace and evacuate our traditional Christian beliefs about what's true and what's good, what's righteous. They would evacuate these things by filling the space with paganism and earth worship and watch for the environmentalists and the radical left to come up with every excuse they can try to say we shouldn't develop these lithium deposits here in the US. They'll change their tune. It was all electric cars and that's what we want. That'll solve the problem or go a long ways to be carbon neutral. That's what it was. Watch for them to say, well, no, actually, 
lithium is very dirty. Lithium mining is very dirty, environmentally dangerous, very impactful on the environment process. We don't want to. You know, we'll find some turtle, we'll find some bird or worm that we've never found anywhere else in the Nevada desert or in <laughs> that border region between Oregon and Nevada. And they'll say, oh, no, we can't, can't develop this lithium or this worm would go extinct. We're going to have to keep on buying lithium batteries from China wherever they get the lithium, as long as it's not here, because that would destroy the planet for us to get the lithium here instead of on the other side of the planet. What they really want is they want to make energy more expensive because they want to disincentivize people making babies. That's part of the reason why they hate marriage. That's part of the reason why they hate parental rights, because they want to make having children so tiresome, so stressful, so expensive that nobody wants to have children. They hate children because they hate human beings. They hate human beings ultimately because they hate God. But what will be proposed, and it's teased in this write-up from Daniel Plainview, what will be proposed is we don't want to develop refining capacity here in the U.S. The environmentalists won't want that, and that's how they'll make sure that it stays more expensive than it needs to because now we'll produce it here, the raw ore, and then we'll send it over to China, and China will refine it and turn it into finished goods, which they will sell back to us. And then you'll have not just the transportation costs from here to China, but then also to here from China, back and forth. How is it efficient? How are you actually having less environmental impact to mine the ore here, ship it to China, and then ship it back from China in the form of batteries? Nobody's going to be able to give you a straight answer, and nor will they even try. They won't even make the attempt if what their real reasons are have to do with religion, have to do with traditional Western civilization, Christianity, more to the point, God, and Christ Jesus, more to the point. But here's what I propose. Rather than just complain about them and correctly describe their outlook and their agenda— Let's move on from that to saying what we should do instead. What we should do instead is if we're going to do the lithium-ion batteries, which I have no objection to, it just needs to be cost-effective. If you want to make them cost-effective and deliverable at scale, fine. Uh, That won't get around the issue of how you're generating the electricity. You're still going to need oil and gas, oil and natural gas and coal to produce electricity efficiently. But if you want to store that electricity efficiently, and you want to use lithium-ion batteries, okay, great. Mine lithium-ion from the Nevada-Oregon border, build the refining capacity here in the U.S., make the batteries as efficient and safe as possible here in the U.S., and let's make sure as much of that money stays in the U.S. as possible. You'll find that the cost of the lithium-ion batteries goes down dramatically that way. By extension, everything that the lithium-ion batteries are being put into, all, all the things that the batteries are being put into will, by turn, get much less expensive because the batteries are extraordinarily expensive when you have to buy them from China and China gets the ore from other places in the world. If all of a sudden we're buying them from ourselves and one another, we're making the batteries here, we're harvesting the ore here, we're making the cars here, that could be an absolute game changer for our economic outlook. And that's what we want. For all the same reasons that we should be pro-oil and gas harvested, drilled for, extracted, transported, refined here in the U.S., for all the same reasons you would also want to harvest the lithium ore that we have here in the U.S., 
refine it here in the U.S., it's the same principle. Keep your transportation costs low, maximize supply relative demand, and you will find the cost goes down dramatically. Cheaper energy will mean a more vibrant economy, which will in turn mean that it's easier for husbands and fathers to provide for their families, which will mean that you have an easier time having families, which will mean that you have more families. You'll have bigger families, which will also help with the demographics. Our fertility slump, people are not even replacing themselves in this country and much of the developed world. We should want that to change. We should want that to turn around. We need that to turn around. In fact, we have a mandate from God, the dominion mandate, to turn that around. Young men, listen, if you want to get married and have a whole bunch of beautiful children and raise those children with your beautiful wife, homeschool them, it's a good thing. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. All those instincts you have, don't suppress them. Channel them into developing the capacity to provide and protect and to train up children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Channel those instincts into figuring out how to be an honorable man who cares most about what God has called you to, what God has commanded, what God has purposed for you, what he's promised you. And then figure out a woman who will fit most closely the Proverbs 31, excellent wife who can find she's more precious than jewels pattern because she fears the Lord too, because she loves the Lord and she's going to love you and serve you and submit to you and be subject to you and your children and not see that as some degrading thing, which it was never, it was never a degrading thing in the mind of God who actually originally set it up that way and created us that way. If some people have made it into a degraded thing, into a dehumanizing or humiliating or oppressive thing, if they have, that's not the standard. And our standard is not just to do the opposite of whatever they did. Our standard is to submit ourselves to God, to obey God, to believe God, to love God, to fear God, to rest in his promises. That's our standard. Take note of people who would try and lead you astray. Absolutely. Don't listen to them. Listen to God. And if this turns into a booming American domestic energy sector out in the Nevada, Oregon area or down in Arkansas, if it turns into a moneymaker and a way for you to get your own home, raise a family, get your own wife, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, men, if it turns into that, if it turns into children being a blessing from Yahweh, The children of one's youth are like arrows in the hand of a warrior if it turns into you being able to have a whole mess of children when you're young, all the better. All the better. But it's going to be a debate. The left is going to fight us about it. The environmentalists are going to fight us about it. So long as it was utopia and no place, they loved the idea of us all just driving electric cars. When it becomes a pathway to America actually being economically independent, again, watch for them to try and put a stop to it or curb it until it's just as expensive as it would be to get from anywhere else in the world. Don't let them do it. Let's not let them do that to us and to our children after us. In other news, though, let's touch on a story by Brittany Casco over at Fox News about a New York woman walking down the street with a looking for a husband sign 
sparking plenty of conversation. Carolina Geitz is a 29-year-old living in New York City who recently went through the streets holding the self-made cardboard sign signifying her wishes. Geitz told Fox News Digital on Tuesday the idea for the sign was originally a joke between her and her friends. Quote, we had a discussion with friends that dating apps were not working because it takes a long time to chat. As a joke, I said that I'll go outside with a sign. Now, this is amusing, and she has at Caroline Gates at the bottom of the sign, so you know where to find her online. She doesn't say what social media. I don't know if that's where she's at on Twitter, if that's where she's at on Instagram. I don't know. Maybe check both places. If you're looking for a husband, ladies, this is probably not the way to go. Who knows what you may find. You may find a husband. I don't know if it's that difficult to find a husband, but you may find a husband. You're probably not going to find a husband this way. Um, I think it's sad, not because I don't realize she's joking, but because I do realize she's joking. I think it's sad that this would be a joke. Uh, Traditionally, historically, this is where extended family comes in. This is where church family comes in to say, you are single and so is that guy over there. And we have observed your character, your manner of life, your attitudes, your priorities. You're a good fit for him. We should introduce you. We should get you talking with him. Or to the man, hey, you know, you're single. We've noticed that you don't have a wife. And uh, would, would you like to have a wife? Yeah. When, when do you think you'd be ready to have a wife? You know, there's a gal over there who is also single. And she doesn't have a husband. And you know, we were just thinking... You could maybe talk with her and uh, maybe you both would not be single anymore and everybody would win. We would love to see that because we like you, we like her, and uh, you guys should get together. You should talk. You know, historically, that's how this has been handled many times in many places all over the world. But this is a very honorable way to do it. What happens when all your friends are other single people and it's all... Just date, break up, live together for a while, break up, move out, find somebody else, move in with them. What happens when we tell young women and young men in their 20s that they have to go to college, then they have to work for several years, they have to travel Europe, they have to see the sights, they have to learn how to be single and about themselves and self-indulgent through all of their peak fertile years where they would be able to have children, and then we bombard them with images and sound, a whole lot of noise about how, oh, you you don't want to have children. Your life is over. Live it up while you can. Make this last as long as it can. What happens is their peak fertility years come and go, and then by the time they do get married, they don't have kids. And this is why we're sub-replacement level as far as fertility rates in developed nations. We're so distracted. But it's not that people aren't having relations. They have relations with people they're not married to, where there's no commitment. And there's no commitment to having a child, even if they conceive. They don't want to conceive because there's no commitment between the man and the woman. Go figure. Who to thunk? Of course you don't want to have children with somebody you're not committed to. You're not convinced you would want to be committed to. Of course. But then women being on birth control for years, through all their peak fertility years, or getting abortions, that makes it harder for them to have children when they want to have children. It also sears their consciences, I'm convinced, because they have to justify and rationalize how this is actually 
just doing what's honorable in the sight of all, except when everybody does what's right in their own eyes, don't be so fast to do what is honorable in the sight of all when it comes to putting off marriage until you're in your 30s and not having kids, except maybe one or two, maybe. And by now you're tired and you've been also given a lot of noise about how you don't actually have any right to parent your children, discipline them, train them, teach them. You're not competent for any of that from the same people who said you shouldn't get married or have kids in the first place. At a certain point, you just say, hey, listen, these guys don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. They're lying or they're just repeating somebody else's lies. It's not true that the ideal would be for you to wait until you're 30 to get married. It's not true that you have to go to college. It's not true that you shouldn't have children because the planet is going to be destroyed from too many people. All these are not true things. They're lies from selfish people who wanted everybody else around them to be selfish so that they wouldn't have anybody calling them out for being selfish. This gal making a joke of walking around with a sign looking for a husband, does she expect to find a husband? No, I don't believe she does. But this being a thing, this being actually she's at exactly the age that most women on average, if they do get married at all, get married in our culture now. 29 is the average. What we need is churches to prioritize this for young people, encourage young people to get married, encourage young men to get into lines of work where they can provide for a wife and children. Don't encourage and don't make excuses for and do not spiritualize perpetual adolescence. Don't tell them that everything you did, all the ways you went about it were quite correct. If that's what you did, you were perpetually adolescent. You're still perpetually adolescent. Don't flatter yourself. This is too important and it will hurt all of us if we don't find a better way to relate. The church needs to reclaim authority and a voice when it comes to instilling virtuous attitudes, virtuous habits towards marriage and having children and raising those children. So also the extended family needs to resume its natural God-given role in helping to facilitate these things and supporting and providing for these things. If that will happen, you won't have 29-year-old women making a joke out of looking for a husband. Because you'll just say, oh, you're looking for a husband? How about try the church down the road that really loves Jesus and they teach the Bible and they study the Bible and they are obedient, they're faithful. And by faithful, we don't mean faithful in an introspective, navel-gazing way. We mean faithful as in they obey. They hear the words of Jesus and they do them. They put them into practice, like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Yeah, go check out that church. You'll find a husband in due time if you want a husband because that also is biblical that we would tell the young women who are unmarried to get married. Paul says it. I'm not reading between the lines. It's the lines. Every woman should have her own husband. Every man should have his own wife. They should render to one another their conjugal duties. That's the lines. That's what Paul says. But there's a lot more that has to be obeyed as well for that to be feasible. We haven't been obeying it. We've been neglecting it. We've been apathetic, self-serving, self-indulgent, disobedient, doing what's right in our own eyes. And it's time to stop. It's time to agree with God and be single-minded about it as a people, as individuals and families and churches as a country. In other news, though, actually not the news, we're going to talk about the political spectrum. On Wikipedia, there is a article all about the political spectrum, this idea 
of figuring out where people are at, categorizing, organizing positions, proposals, parties along a political spectrum. But first, I want to explain why it is that I want to talk about this subject. Sunday night, we had our Ecclesia Forum, our second forum, and a question was raised about political conservatism. What is a conservative? Where do Christian conservatives end up on the spectrum? Or if there's a range of various approaches to politics taken by Christians, why, in the presentation from Isaiah Arakayos, why is conservative Christian not one of the examples listed? And it was a good question. Good question from Monica Chavez, my neighbor also, two houses down, Monica Chavez. I usually talk about my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez. But in this case, it would also be correct to say my neighbor two houses down, Monica Chavez. But the question was a good one. And I answered in part that conservative really is a relative term. What are we conserving? And part of the reason I say that, and I want to unpack this a little bit, is you have certain so-called conservatives. I wouldn't call them conservatives. They would be pseudo-conservatives to me, like David French political commentator, and I would say general turncoat, never Trumper, and supposedly an evangelical Christian thought leader here in this country. David French is opposed to any efforts to roll back Obergefell v. Hodges because he knows a lot of same-sex couples who think they're married, and it would be too upsetting, too disruptive to tell them, in fact, no, you're not. No, you're not married. That was not valid. And Obergefell v. Hodges was terrible judicial reasoning. You do not have a legal right. You don't have a constitutional right. You don't have a right in the eyes of God to pretend that two men can get married, two women can get married. You don't have the right. It's not in the Constitution. This is the same novel reasoning that gave us Roe v. Wade, actually. But David French would also say, let's not celebrate too loudly Roe v. Wade being overturned for the same reasons. Roe v. Wade decided in 1973, now has been the so-called law of the land for some 70 years, or it was until last year when it was overturned. And 70 years is long enough ago that we should just conserve this as the status quo. So conservative in some people's minds means you maintain the status quo. And typically, The people who are most likely to give big amounts of money, large amounts of money, to so-called conservatives are the ones who have made quite a lot of money off of the current status quo. And that's what they mean by conservative is they want to conserve the status quo that has made them very wealthy and influential. If we are going to do anything about their having sold out what is true and what is good to maintain relevance, to maintain their lifestyle to maintain their positions of authority. If we're going to do something about it, we're going to have to present a counter-narrative. We're going to have to disagree with them, and we're going to have to do so very clearly, and we're going to have to do so in a way that is persuasive. And the best way to do that, really, is to go back in time to an earlier kind of conservative. Not the David French kind of conservative, not even necessarily the Donald Trump type of conservative, If you can even call him a conservative, I don't think you can say he's a conservative. I think you can say he's a populist in a lot of ways. 
But if you go back in time to an earlier kind of conservative, say a Burkean conservative, what you find is an appeal to the lessons learned, some good lessons, some bad lessons of previous generations. When we find that previous generations did some things better than we do and had better results, someone is going to say, but wait a second, what about all all the progress, right? Well, you sound like a progressive. You sound like you're trying to conserve progressivism, and that's not going to do it. That's not okay. If you're conserving progressivism, you don't actually want progress. What you want is the status quo, and that could be because it's a very lucrative thing to conserve progressivism. For you, you've benefited, but then are you actually paying an opportunity cost? Are we missing out on quite a lot more benefit and a mitigation of a lot of these hazards that are destroying wealth faster than we can create it now? See also inflation. See also high crime rates. See also fatherlessness. See also low fertility. Are we paying an opportunity cost? Yes, we are. If people are only presenting to you the benefits of their impractical ideas that have been tried now for a century where we just trust the experts on everything, if they're presenting to you all of the benefits and then they're saying it's just cost on the other side to undo any of the wrongheaded schemes that have now been built up and are being conserved, they're not being honest. And there is more to the story and we would know that there's more to the story, but we have to have the courage to contradict folly and nonsense. And we have to have the courage, yes, as a matter of fact, to be thrown out. We're going to have to have the courage to be respectful, but to be clear. And if they throw us out, they throw us out. But at least someone said, this is not okay. It was being right in your own eyes. I get it. And until somebody else cross-examined, it seemed correct. There was a way that seemed right, but it leads to death. And the first to state his case was the only one stating his case really on a number of these points for quite some time. The second needs to come and examine the first to state his case. But back to the political spectrum. Let's talk about it and let's explain how this came to be, that there is such a thing as a political spectrum. Because you don't find this in the Bible. You find following after Yahweh, obeying Yahweh, serving Yahweh on the one hand, and then on the other hand, idolatry. On the other hand, wickedness. That's the political spectrum in the Bible, so to speak. So what do we mean today by political spectrum? Well, here's what Wikipedia says. A political spectrum is a system to characterize and classify different political positions in relation to one another. These positions sit upon one or more geometric axes that represent independent political dimensions. The expressions political compass and political map are used to refer to the political spectrum as well, especially to popular two-dimensional models of it. Most long-standing spectra include the left-right dimension as a measure of social, political, and economic hierarchy, which originally referred to seating arrangements in the French parliament after the revolution, 1789 to 1799, with radicals on the left and aristocrats on the right. While communism and socialism are usually regarded internationally as being on the left, conservatism and reactionism are generally regarded as being on the right. Liberalism can mean different things in different contexts, being sometimes on the left, social liberalism, and other times on the right, conservative liberalism or classical liberalism. Those with an intermediate outlook are sometimes classified as centrists. Politics that rejects the conventional left-right spectrum is often known as syncretic 
politics, this form of politics has been criticized as tending to mischaracterize positions that have a logical location on a two-axis spectrum because they seem randomly brought together on a one-axis left-right spectrum. Some political scientists have noted that a single left-right axis is too simplistic and insufficient for describing the existing variation in political beliefs and include other axes to compensate for this problem. Although the descriptive words at polar opposites may vary, the axis of popular Biaxial spectra are usually split between economic issues on a left-right dimension and sociocultural issues or an authority liberty dimension. Now, that's the intro, right? That's the intro to political spectrum on Wikipedia. What do I have to say about it? Well, first, let's address the elephant in the room. That radicals love revolution and aristocrats typically like the status quo. Aristocrats are the best men, or the men who are considered to be the best men. What do we factor in when we say that this or that man is the best man? What do we factor in? How do we determine whether this or that man is the best man? Do we mean he's the best man in terms of having the most money? Do we mean that he's the best looking man? He's the most handsome, most charming. Do we mean that he is the best speaker? He speaks very eloquently. Do we mean that he has the best mind? He is cunning. He is shrewd. His great ideas. He's inventive. Typically, these things will go together unless this is multi-generational wealth, in which case maybe the best man is the one who inherited the most material proof that his forebearers were the best men in their generation. Along these lines, the best man is the one whose father invested in him the most instruction, the most discipleship, the most training. The best man is the man whose father set the best example for him in how to speak confidently and clearly. The best man is the man with the most courage. The best man is the man with the best genetics. His father was very good looking and he's inherited good genes. He looks great in a suit. He is dapper. The best man is the man who inherited the most money from his father, who was a successful businessman, a successful entrepreneur, or whatever. In a system where you have everything delineated based on the revolutionaries on the one hand, who typically want revolution because the status quo has not been good to them. And on the other hand, you have the conservatives who are marked by the best men who have profited the most off of the status quo being maintained for as long as it has. They figured out how to game the system, so to speak, right? They figured out what the needs were and they served those needs where the most cost-benefit was to be found. Supply and demand. They were able to supply something that was very much in low supply, but high demand. Very necessary, and they obtained a premium for it, and they conserved that premium. Now what do they want to do? They want to conserve the conditions which led to their becoming the best men in the first place. Naturally, of course. Apart from God, this very often results in the worst men having the most money, the most power, the most pull, the most influence, the most capacity to keep things working to their favor in particular, regardless what those conditions do to the majority. And so what you get when that's the case, apart from God, we become increasingly godless. There's no fear of God before our eyes. We do whatever's right in our own eyes. Maybe we pretend to virtue, but we keep a free hand like Machiavelli would say, like Solinsky would say. So we conserve a status quo, which is corrupt and partial and 
disobedient ultimately. In that case, Edmund Burke would come in as described, as characterized by Russell Kirk in The Conservative Mind. And we have the choice to ratify, which is to say we agree with the laws of God, the moral laws of God in particular, or to break, to violate, to reject, to repudiate, to repeal the laws of God, at least in terms of what we will observe, what we will adhere to, what we will teach to future generations. When it becomes the case that the wealthiest, most powerful, most affluent, most influential men are the ones who are conserving a status quo that is godless and amoral, but actually really immoral. It purports to be amoral, but it ends up being immoral and ungodly. When that becomes what a lot of people mean and think by conservative, you will get more and more and more radicals, more and more and more people on the left, and they will be flush with victory. They will feel their oats and they will carry out a revolution. Now, where you get a uniparty, and this is increasingly being talked about as how you describe the establishment of the Republican and Democrat party in this country, when you get a uniparty is when the establishment of both parties, the people at the very, very top, are happy for it to appear as though there is debate, but it's all rigged. It's as real as professional wrestling was back in the day. It's all staged. It's all scripted. The outcomes are known ahead of time. You know, if this were professional baseball or basketball or football, people would go to jail perhaps, or they would at least be barred from ever playing again when they fix matches, when they tell so-and-so, hey, you're going to go down in the third round. You guys are going to lose big time before the ninth inning. When people are making bets based on predicting, and then they themselves actually control the outcome and they tell the players who appear to us to be playing an honest game, you're going to lose. We're putting you out there to lose. When that's happening in most spheres, when it's you or I who do that kind of a thing, we get in big, big trouble. It's a scandal. When there's no fear of God before our eyes, when there's partiality, when there's a pretending at virtue and there's a uniparty and they work out these deals behind closed doors, they are doing so because they are all alike conservatives after a fashion, but they're conservatives of the current status quo, which is godless. And if it's a godless status quo, they're not really much better than these men of the tribe of Dan, the Danites in the book of Judges, where we read about this man named Micah, who lived in the land of Ephraim, who had his own private Levite, his own shrine, his own carved image, his own metal image, he had his own household gods. And then the Danites come through. And does it really matter whether we call them conservatives? Because they were kind of conserving some aspects of what God commanded. You know, there is an ephod after all. There is a Levite involved after all. You know, do we call them conservatives because they were incorporating things that kind of have a loose affiliation with what was in the law of Moses that God gave to Moses to give to the people of Israel? Do we call them conservatives or do we call them radicals? Do we call them revolutionaries? Either way, what they're doing is wicked and evil and it should be repudiated. And it's presented to us in the book of Judges so that we understand that the people doing what is evil in Yahweh's sight is of a peace with the people doing what is right in their own eyes. It's like when Bernie Sanders ran for president the last several times and people would point out, hey, you know, he's a socialist, right? 
And the Bernie bros would say, no, 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 no. He's a democratic socialist. Um, yeah, that doesn't actually alter in any way my concern. He's a socialist, right? <laughs> the important operative word here is socialist. So he wants socialism by way of democracy, which actually is not an original idea. Frederick Bastiat wrote all about that in the early to mid 19th century. He wrote all about it. Yeah, socialism can absolutely come to you by way of legal plunder. Why is it legal? Because democracy. Why is this what we're coming to democratically? Because increasingly the masses are convinced by demagogues, by fraudsters, by charlatans, that we will all benefit if you legalize stealing from this person to give to these other people over here. And of course, the fraudsters, the charlatans get their cut. They're the middleman. They have to make sure it makes it safely to its intended recipients when you redistribute the wealth. But that's socialism. And if you're going to be socialistic, once you're in that, once you're in the system that says a supermajority of Democrats in the state of Colorado can just censure and remove any of their fellow Republicans in the House of Representatives that they want, that they don't like, pretty soon you have democratically and socialistically removed everybody who would be opposed to communism, out-and-out communism. And then, oh, now it makes so much more sense that we would ship lithium ore to China and have China refine it and turn it into finished goods, manufactured goods, before shipping it back to us at a premium and then holding that over our heads in the event of some kind of a war or conflict. Now now it makes total sense that we would just put ourselves at the mercy of the Chinese Communist Party because, hey, you know what? The left in this country would rather cut a deal with communist China than let Republicans speak or let really true blue, honest to God conservatives make decisions. What this amounts to is a tyranny of the majority. And again, this goes back to Frederick Bastiat, who would say that absolute democracy is functional atheism. And it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense that when you say all we need to know is what the majority wants, what have you left out of the equation. You've left out of the equation what God says. There's no check and balance when it's pure democracy. It's just whatever you can get 51% to sign off on. But then the trouble is you've actually baked into the equation the recipe for a tyrant, for a strongman, for a totalitarian, for a autocrat to swoop in and tell everybody how it's going to be because all he has to do is bully and bribe 51% into whatever he wants or into giving all the emergency power over to him, and then you don't have a democracy anymore. And this is why it's really less the point whether you're a conservative, so-called, or you're a liberal, so-called. The question is, what is your determining factor for what you conserve and what you are permissive about? If we meant that the conservatives are more interested in conserving the good things that God has given us and entrusted to us, I think a lot more of us could, with good conscience, describe ourselves as conservatives. I call myself a conservative. I'm more concerned with that. I think we have a lot of good things that we need to conserve that have been passed down to us, but that not everything that has become the status quo in living memory for the vast majority of our people should be conserved. A lot of it should be abolished and repealed because it's ungodly, because it's unwise, it's been destructive, it has damaged the peace, it has been unjust, it has actually been a violation of what God says when he says 
He wants fair weights and measures. He doesn't want two sets of weights and measures. We have two sets of weights and measures. And how I can prove this to you is consider the claim that is central to social justice. It is at its core ungodly and an abomination to God. Social justice is because it is unequal weights and measures. That's all you need to know about it. It's also, insofar as it appeals to multi-generational sin, collective sin, but multi-generational sin and ethnic, ethnocentric sins, it's a violation of what God says about not punishing children for the sins of their parents or punishing parents for the sins of their children. Every man will bear his own guilt. Well, now the social justice warriors have contrived everything into you are responsible for the sins of all of not just your ancestors, but all of the ancestors of everybody who shares the same pigmentation as you. And when that's the case, if that's the case for long enough, and some people say, hey, I'm a conservative. Well, what kind of a conservative? Well, I want to conserve the status quo since Obergefell v. Hodges. I want to conserve the status quo since Roe v. Wade. I want to conserve the status quo since Edward Bernays overhauled the way that we do politics. I say, shame on you, and you are no conservative, or if you are, then I'm not. Why? Because that would... <laughs> that that would be doubling down on the repudiation of the laws of God. Now, on the flip side, if what somebody meant by liberal is whatever God permits and blesses and says we should be free to do, I'm really focused on us being free to do those things. If that's what somebody meant by liberal, I would say, fantastic, great, you can be a Christian liberal. Jesus talks a lot about freedom and being free indeed. Yeah, Absolutely. To freedom, we've been called. Yes, absolutely. Amen. And don't use your freedom as an occasion to sin. Don't use your freedom to become a slave to sin. Be a slave to righteousness. So don't go too far with this whole freedom thing to where you lose sight of your obligations and duties to be a slave for Christ, a servant of God. And this is where conservatives, real, true blue, genuine, Burkean conservatives would say, We want ordered liberty. We don't want unrestrained liberty because unrestrained liberty is as bad as pure democracy. It's godlessness. It's licentiousness. It's libertinism. It's lawlessness. You have to order liberty in order to preserve liberty, in order to make any use of liberty and to not have everything just come crashing down. And so going back to our forum from this past Sunday night, it was great, right? It was a great forum discussion. And it was a great question. What about, right? Monica asked, what about conservatism? Where's conservatism in all of this? It's a great question. And (laughs) as you can tell, there's quite a lot that goes into answering that question. But the tricky thing is engaging in these discussions and even just being sure what we believe about these things because God said so. Because God said this and we find that these principles have been tried and applied and successful, and we want that success. Or what would we say? If you look back in time, if you look back, let's say, to historical figures from previous times, is it sufficient to find flaws in them to say, we're not going to emulate or imitate any of the good things that they did? Where they were successful, we're not going to admit that because they were flawed characters. We're just going to tear down their statues. We're going to rip up their paintings, splash soup on them because the oceans are boiling or some dumb thing. Cancel culture has its own form, actually maybe even started in too many liberal churches where when we couldn't put these men from the Bible on a pedestal anymore, 
we said, we're going to demonize them. Don't imitate anything that they did because as soon as you start to hold them up as an example, somebody's going to say, well, you're not that guy. And also, oh, by the way, didn't that guy have all kinds of problems? Yeah, we should just cancel him. Samson, canceled. Remember the bit about the prostitute? And I don't know, there's a lot of violence there. I don't, I don't think that's appropriate for Christians anymore. You know what? Sometimes violence is appropriate for the Christian. Sometimes it is. Say, for instance, if a Christian is in law enforcement and they're answering a call of an attempted rape, attempted murder, if the suspect wants to violently resist arrest and attack that cop, violence is the answer, actually. Really, truly. He does not bear the sword for nothing. Romans 13, New Testament, Paul. If you don't take it from Paul, then I think you're just making stuff up. And I think I don't agree with you. And I can make stuff up too. But let's go with Paul on this. How about soldiers too? The military. It's just scaling up the role of law enforcement domestically to say that we have a military and the military is there to (laughs) to preserve, to preserve and protect. I mean, ideally, whatever people have twisted it into, in some cases, the military is supposed to serve and protect the country whose military it is. If I, as the taxpayer, am taxed at 27% and a lot of my tax money goes to fund weapons, vehicles, technology, the pay for, lodging of, feeding of, soldiers and their families, I expect that the military, my tax dollars and your tax dollars as Americans, support That military is going to protect our country from enemies who want to attack and kill our people who want to steal what it is that we have. They want to take over our country. I expect our military is going to make it their business to protect us from those who do what is evil, to punish those who do what is evil. And if a Christian is in the military, serving in the military, I would say absolutely, yes, violence is the answer if that violence is directed at somebody who's doing what is evil. If it's an evil thing, if we can agree that it's an evil thing for a foreign army to come into our country and try to kill our people and take over our country, then I would say also too, it's an entirely lawful order in the eyes of God himself who institutes governing authorities. No authority exists except what has been instituted by God, Romans 13 says. It's a lawful thing in the eyes of God and man for the Christian who serves in the military to use deadly force, to use violence, to restrain evil. But in closing, because I do have to run, it should be obvious by now that the big hurdle, the big challenge to talking about any of these things intelligibly is going to be the same kinds of responses from the same kinds of men that we read about in Judges 17 and 18. One, who want to innovate and they take liberties that really are not theirs to take. They have no right to take the liberties that they do, mixing in idolatry with worship of our God in spirit and in truth. When questioned, they're going to shrug and say, what? Right? It's fine. And on the other hand, you're going to have those who, like the 600 men of the Danites, blow through and they just take whatever they want. And they think, well, there's more of us than there are of you. And when questioned, when challenged, they're going to say, you know what? You should probably just shut up right now because someone might get angry, we're going to have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We're going to have to test things against the scriptures, and we're going to have to think long and hard about what is our business. 
that we would mind our own affairs. Working with our hands, living quiet lives, aspiring to live quiet lives at least, we're going to have to think long and hard about what is our business. What are our affairs? How do we get to the point where we can live peaceably? We should pray for those in authority. Absolutely. We should also teach disciples to observe all that Christ commanded because that's part of the Great Commission. It's not just go make converts. It's make disciples. How do we know that they're disciples? Because they're disciplined. Disciplined according to what? What Jesus commanded. If we rediscover that, we will also have a clearer view of what to do about this whole political spectrum business. Because really, the spectrum that matters is righteousness and wickedness, wisdom and folly. What are your political views? Well, I'm for, ri- I'm for righteousness and wisdom. That's what I'm for. Which party, which movement is for that? That's the movement I want to be affiliated with. That's the party I'm going to vote for. That's the candidate I'm going to vote for. But like I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.